What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Dawn of Sapiens podcast. I was researching for my next installment of my Out of Africa series on YouTube, and I noticed an interesting pattern in Eastern Neanderthal DNA. It seemed to me that where data was available, many of these individuals in Eastern Eurasia had paternal and maternal lineages that originate from different European regions. This could have sent me down several different rabbit holes, but it made me think about a very particular set of ideas. It's probably because I've also been researching the topic of slavery that it made me wonder about the autonomy of female Neanderthals. When it comes to prehistoric female genomic and migration patterns, I've heard too many people jump to the conclusions that they must have been kidnapped and raped. This projection of historic behaviors on prehistoric populations is fucking lazy to me. It's a story that neither proves or disproves a hypothesis. It offers a satisfactory explanation for those that want it to be so. But looking at my computer screen and seeing a line that represents mitochondrial DNA start from a cave in France, traveling over 3,200 miles to a cave in Russia, made me wonder if female hominins in general, and female Neanderthals in particular, are robbed of their autonomy. Is viewing prehistoric existence through a historic lens a ridiculous and lazy approach to prehistory? Mythologist Joseph Campbell asserts the male as the one that journeys from home, endures challenges, travesties, and near-death experiences, which transform him into the hero before he returns home. But does this journey reflect prehistory? Now, obviously, I'm not arguing that Neanderthal migrations consisted of roving female warriors plodding across Eurasia while male Neanderthals preferred the comforts of knitting and gardening. But I am wondering how ridiculous is the assumption that for female lineages to have migrated thousands of miles, or even to a neighboring population, it had to be due to the coercion of males. Is it not possible that female Neanderthals possess their own agency and are as responsible for their movements as males are? The claim of kidnap and rape is a very human, aka civilizational perspective. The claim of female autonomy might come off as a feminist argument to quite a few of you. That's not the perspective I'm coming from. I'm wondering from an animal point of view. Modern humans and Neanderthals are and were just as much animals as we consider chimpanzees or gorillas to be. And this is the lens that I'm looking through. Does the ecology and demography of Neanderthal existence allow for such female autonomy? There's many ways to attack this question. I'm going to look at natal dispersal patterns of different species. I did some quick and dirty research to try to understand where Neanderthals and modern humans fit when it comes to sex-biased natal dispersal patterns. Moving from species that are the least related to Neanderthals to the most related is a decent starting point. Sex bias dispersal 
is said to exist for three main reasons, inbreeding avoidance, mate competition, and resource competition. In general, mammals eject their male youths out of the family before sexual maturity, while birds eject their females. It's not surprising that sub-adults in both mammals and birds log many more miles than adults. I've noticed there are always exceptions to the rule. For example, the secretary bird in southern Africa wanders more than 150 kilometers from their birth nest, but they also return to the region where they were born in order to breed. Elephants follow the general mammal pattern. By 15 years of age, male elephants leave their birth group and wander alone or in all male herds. Gray wolves are a little bit different since both males and females leave their natal pack. When they find a suitable mate in territory, they form their own pack. This makes sense because wolves live in single family units and the pups have no other option but to leave to find genetically suitable mates. Asian black bears follow the general mammalian dispersal pattern. Females remain on average within 5 miles of their birth region, while males migrate an average of 17 miles. The social structure of a species influences which sex leaves their birth group. Owl monkeys, like gray wolves, are dual dispersal, probably because owl monkeys are a monogamous species and live in a family group. With only family around, Juveniles skip town between 2.2 and 4.9 years old. Monkeys, bears, or wolves aren't especially close to Neanderthals or sapiens. The lesser ape gibbons are a bit closer. Then again, their species don't agree on dispersal patterns. The white-handed gibbon female leaves their group as a subadult. But in the black-crested gibbons, both male and female subadults leave their home turf. Females leave around 8 years of age and males wait a while longer at 10 years of age. In one observed case, a female remained with her natal group when the dominant male, her father, was forced from the group by a younger male from another population. This shows how exceptions to the rule will always exist and how social dynamics can change the rule. Orangutans lead us to the great apes, but they split from our and Neanderthal's lineage 12 million years ago. Orangutans are the loneliest of all apes. Males and females live solitary lives and only come together to breed. That being said, young females establish themselves near their mother's territory while males leave the area. The gorilla serves up an interesting case. Their social structure is very different than modern humans and probably Neanderthal's social organization. Most people know that the silverback of a group is the dominant male. Being dominant gives the silverback breeding rights to the many females of the group. But the fact that most males stay in their natal groups until 12 years of age and sometimes longer is mostly overlooked. After reaching 12 years old, some males stay in their natal groups as subordinates, and others leave and become solitary wanderers. All females not only leave their birth groups, but most leave their secondary groups as well. Females prefer younger silverbacks 
whose reign will last many years into the future. This ensures that the female's offspring won't be exposed to infanticide. Female gorillas also leave larger groups for smaller groups when the opportunity presents itself. Gorilla dispersal patterns not only show a strong female bias, but they show an autonomy of females that is independent of silverback influence. Like gorillas, female chimps are the sex to leave their natal group. This happens at about 13 years of age, and females usually find new groups over 10 kilometers away. For example, in August of 2023, Rihanna Drummond-Clark, an evolutionary anthropologist and primatologist from the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Anthropology, noted from the field that a new female named Huru was spotted in the Issa Valley chimp community. She was first noticed in June of 2023, and by August, she was fully integrated into the group. Males remain in their birth group for life, but there are exceptions in both cases. Males will sometimes move to adjacent groups, and females have been observed remaining in their natal group on multiple occasions. Again, none of these, quote, rules are concrete and some variation and flexibility exists in how they are followed. Bonobos add their own complexities to the story. They follow the general pattern of chimpanzees, where young females leave their birth group. One difference is they leave much younger than chimpanzees. Where chimpanzees leave at 13 years of age, bonobos skedaddle at an average of 7.5 years old. There are some interesting implications to this difference. Chimpanzees leave at the onset of sexual maturity and the arrival of secondary sexual characteristics. Bonobos leave before they are sexually mature. The social dynamics of each species appears to be behind these diverging behaviors. Female chimpanzees are hostile to incoming females. Because of this, it is advantageous for new arrivals to be sexually receptive to secure protection from interested males. Bonobo females not only tolerate arriving females, but they actually share food patches and engage with them socially by grooming. This lack of competition means young bonobo females are free to leave before sexual maturity because they don't require male protection. The differences between chimps and bonobos are a great window into how a difference in social dynamics results in a change of natal dispersal. While this example is much simpler than the differences between modern society and prehistoric life of both sapiens and Neanderthals, it does demonstrate why projecting the conditions and variables of modernity back 40,000 years isn't a realistic avenue to explore the past. Before I jump into bipedal species, I want to point out a general trend that this exploration has revealed. Earlier I stated that in general, it is the young males that leave their natal group in mammals and young females disperse in birds. But if you think about it, you might notice that the more related to our species, Homo sapiens, the more likely that female dispersal is the dispersal pattern that is followed. Elephants and Asian black bears disperse males. Even some gibbons disperse males. 
But once you hit the great apes, with the exception of the solitary orangutans, orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos all follow the female dispersal pattern. This trajectory might be a hint for bipeds. I'm going to mention one other tidbit before we push ahead. It's something that evolutionary ecologist Santiago Claremont out of the University of Toronto noticed. It's a statistical observation. Claremont shows that in birds, the distance of natal dispersal is highly correlated to the size of the wing and therefore the efficiency of flight. In my opinion, this same relationship applies to great apes. Plainly put, bipedal species have a much higher dispersal distance than chimpanzees and bonobos. But rather than the size of the wing, it's the size or length of the leg that matters. Sure, there's other ecological factors that matter, such as vegetation. Chimps and bonobos live in trees, not grasslands. And denser resources might mean that groups are much closer to each other than savanna species. But the morphology of chimps and bonobos results in an upper limit of feasible dispersal distance, especially when you consider that continents have more open spaces than treed environments. In this category, bipedal species have a higher ceiling thanks to their longer, more efficient legs. But longer legs don't say much about sapiens or Neanderthals' natal dispersal patterns, female autonomy, or whether human narratives such as kidnap and rape belong anywhere near this exploration of sex-biased dispersal. Over the last 20 years, it's become popular to question the utility of studying modern-day hunter-gatherers to understand the evolutionary past of our species, Homo sapiens. The argument goes that modern-day hunter-gatherers are not relics of the past. They are themselves as evolved as the rest of us. To me, this is obviously indisputable. A second point that is always made is hunter-gatherers do not exist in a vacuum and they have been impacted by and in contact with civilization. Both arguments are a weak justification. Comparing our evolutionary way of living to modern civilization with our domestic animals, air conditioners, overflow of cheap food, and to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle of living off the land depending on environmental conditions, group members, fitness of mind and body, and threat of predators should show you that hunter-gatherer lifestyles are the closer evolutionary fit. Civilization offers its own unique challenges and way of life but it tells us little about human nature and the way of life in our evolutionary past. For this reason, when I talk about human dispersal, I'm speaking in the context of hunter-gatherers and using the Southern African Kung as my primary source of information. Early anthropologists considered Homo sapiens as patrilocal, as females were the sex to disperse. This is probably influenced by the pattern of civilizational populations where a coalition of males, in other words, relatives, was required to defend their resources against neighboring groups. But even ethnographic data from groups such as the Kung seem to indicate the same pattern. When asked 
by anthropologists, the Kong claimed when a woman married a man, she went and lived with him and his family. But things became even more complicated when more questions and observations were made. When a couple married, often even before marriage, the groom was required to live with the wife's family. The husband, or prospective husband, was required to hunt for the wife's family to earn their right to marriage. On top of this, the couple often remained with the wife's family through the first two births until the youngest was no longer, quote, knee-high, in other words, toddler-aged. This means that a couple might live with the wife's family from 10 to 15 years in total after which they often relocate to the husband's family. In the first 20 to 30 years of a couple's marriage, they will have lived equally with each partner's parents. Anthropologist Richard Lee demonstrated this pattern in a 1972 survey of 114 married Kung couples. He found that 22 lived with the husband's parents, 24 lived with the wife's, 12 lived with both sets of parents, 15 lived with neither sets of parents, and both sets of parents were deceased for 41 couples. This is surprisingly well balanced, and it's one reason most researchers now consider Homo sapiens as bilocal or dual dispersal. With the rise of DNA, Anthropologists are able to study population demographics in even higher resolution, and they found that a large fraction of hunter-gatherer populations aren't genetically related at all. Kinship isn't required to be a member of the group. This speaks to the extreme fluidity of group composition in Homo sapiens. Kung marriages can end as quickly as they begin and are just as often initiated and ended by females as they are by males. Marriage isn't required to leave the natal group to join another group. Like gorillas, hunter-gatherers disperse to different groups multiple times during a lifetime. Unlike gorillas, both male and female hunter-gatherers follow this pattern. And before you start getting hot and bothered about me comparing hunter-gatherers to gorillas, just know I'm not limiting the comparison to hunter-gatherers. Americans and Europeans are just as much animals as any other human population. It just so happens we are much closer to the zoo variety of these other species. Richard Lee found multiple factors that affect hunter-gatherer natal and postnatal dispersal patterns. Rainfall variability was one of the biggest influences in times of low rainfall, multiple groups move near permanent sources of water. This provides the perfect opportunity for young individuals to switch groups when the groups eventually go their separate ways. On the other end of the spectrum, decreasing food density causes groups to splinter and spread out. This sometimes results in migration to another region. The last factor is, not surprisingly, personal conflict. When conflict occurs between two individuals, one of the most practiced solutions is simply moving to a different group. When an individual's kin and friend network spans across multiple populations, this is not near as daunting as we imagine. It's not like moving to a new city where you know no one. 
This doesn't specifically help us as a reference to Neanderthal dispersal patterns, but it does show us some possibilities and it demonstrates a certain degree of female autonomy in our species. Before I continue to Neanderthal dispersal patterns, I'm going to paint a basic history of Neanderthals using a very broad brush. Neanderthals are predominantly a Eurasian species. Non-African might be a better way to describe them since they also lived in the Near East. Not much is known about their ancestors or where they originated. Genetic evidence tells us their and the Denisovan lineage split from ours sometimes between 500 to 700,000 years ago. But during this time, known as the Middle Pleistocene, the paleoanthropological record is scarce and what evidence is available is highly debated because researchers interpret the evidence differently. This uncertainty has been dubbed the muddle in the middle, but some certainties do exist. Modern day Spain is the best starting point. Multiple specimens were discovered in the area of Gran Dolina, Spain, dated between 1.2 million years ago and 860,000 years ago. They were attributed to a species known as Homo antecessor. Protein analysis puts this species as a sister lineage of the last common ancestor of sapiens, Neanderthals, and Denisovans. Antecessor is not a direct descendant to us or Neanderthals, but it's likely our ancestral population was similar to it and at some point migrated out of Africa into Europe. Still, antecessor is not direct evidence of Neanderthals. In a cave known as Cima de los Huesos, very near Grandolina, genetically analyzed remains were identified as early Neanderthals. Originally designated as Homo heidelbergensis, it is here in the Atupuerca Mountains where the first indication of Neanderthal origins are found and dated to 435,000 years ago. To play it safe, let's broaden their homeland to Western Europe as a whole. And before I jump into the meat of Neanderthal sex bias dispersal, let's look at general migration patterns to set the scene. Between 120 and 100,000 years ago, Genetically sequenced remains identify Neanderthals in Spain, Belgium, Germany, Poland, and Russia. By 100,000 years ago, these early lineages disappeared, especially in areas such as Russia and Denisova Cave. Around 100,000 years ago, Neanderthals from Western Europe migrated east and established themselves in the formerly inhabited areas of places such as Alti Russia. These new arrivals were much more closely related to European Neanderthals than to the more ancient Neanderthals that lived in the area more than 15,000 years before. For example, the lineage of an individual known as Denisova V, but nicknamed the Alti Neanderthal, split from the ancestors of these new arrivals around 190,000 years ago. In contrast, another famous individual who was 13 years old when she died, Denisova XI, a.k.a. Denny, had a Neanderthal mother whose ancestors were more closely related to the last Neanderthals to walk the earth than to the Alti Neanderthal. Her father was a Denisovan, which is something I might talk about in a separate episode. 
it's this pattern of population collapse in the East and eventual replacement by Western Neanderthals that I want to zoom in on because this migration history is a good opportunity to analyze Neanderthal sex biased dispersal. We've nearly made it to the main event, but before I continue, it's probably a good idea to recap the dispersal patterns I've discussed so far. Animals more distantly related to us, such as elephants and black bears, see their young males leave the family group. But the closer you travel down the family tree to humans, the more likely you'll find young females dispersing from the family. Gibbons are a mixed bag. Some species disperse their females while others kick out their males. Solitary orangutans show a male natal dispersal pattern. From elephants to orangutans, dual dispersal is sprinkled here and there among the species. And then comes the three most closely related species to humans. Gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos all show various forms of female dispersal. And as we've seen, humans show an unmatched flexibility in their natal dispersal and postnatal dispersal patterns. Our species is not only dual dispersal, but bilocal. These populations were comprised of both related males and females and large fractions of unrelated males and females. But how do Neanderthals compare? Should we assume their natal dispersal patterns match ours? Or are they unique because of their unique evolutionary environment? Are they so similar to us that rape, kidnap, and forced relocation are legitimate drivers of female migration? Let's find out. Before I do, I just want to say, for the record, I'm not prepared to apply any of those narratives as legitimate drivers of pre-civilization homo sapiens either. The Neanderthal migratory history I briefly described did not cover the migratory patterns of each sex. You might be asking, is it even possible to know this information from individuals that walked on earth over 30,000 years ago? Luckily, the field of ancient DNA has produced some examples that give a glimpse into the behavior of Neanderthal sex-biased natal dispersal. Using mitochondrial DNA, aka the powerhouse of the cell, which all sexes carry, but only inherit from their mother, Y-chromosome DNA, which males inherit from their father, and nuclear DNA, inherited from both parents, it's possible to tease out general patterns of both local and continent-wide Neanderthal migrations. The late Eastern Neanderthals have an interesting mix of paternal and maternal lineages. A population of Neanderthals orbiting Chagorskaya Cave in the Alton region of Russia possess a Y chromosome that is most closely related to a specimen from France and mitochondrial DNA from an individual found in Croatia. In other words, this individual's paternal lineage originated in France, while its maternal lineage originated in Croatia. An individual known as Oklenikov A from Oklenikov Cave, Russia, has nuclear DNA most closely related to those from Chagorskaya Cave, but inherited mitochondrial DNA from France. In other words, this individual's father likely originated from Russia, while its mother's lineage migrated from France. Which is interesting, because when you look at the Chagorskaya population, one of their lineage also originated from France, 
but it's the opposite sex of Oklanikov A's inherited lineage. Mesmiskaya II from Mesmiskaya Cave, Russia, has a paternal lineage most closely related with a Croatian specimen and a maternal lineage from Spain. At the very least, the Chagorskaya population and the Mesmiskaya II individual show that their female and male ancestors originate from two different Western Europe locations. The Oklanikov A individual showed that his paternal lineage was distantly related to the Chagorskaya population while his mother migrated from France. This hints at a dual natal dispersal pattern, but also shows that females and males probably did not disperse together or end up in the same region. I would find it hard to believe that we could attribute male dispersal as free will while declaring female dispersal as coercive or forced. This female autonomy shouldn't be a surprise since other great ape females appear to disperse freely. Even the gorilla, whose silverback maintains what some might call a harem, is incapable of restricting female movement. Gorilla females, in fact, disperse more often in a single lifetime than chimpanzees or bonobos. And in the case of Chagorskaya and Oklanikov caves, which are about 53 miles apart in Russia's Alti region, it appears that the little gene flow that occurred between the groups is due to female migration. Skov et al. analyzed the differences in the Y chromosomes and the mitochondrial DNA of the two locations and concluded, quote, Based on the shorter average coalescent time for the Y chromosomes than for the mitochondrial DNA and shared mitochondrial DNA variants between Chagorskaya and Oklanikov individuals, we suggest that these small Neanderthal communities were predominantly linked by female migration, end quote. In my opinion, there are two takeaways from their analysis. One, exactly as they stated, in this region at least, males stayed in their natal group while females dispersed out of it. Second, and this is both obvious and subtle at the same time, males did not disperse or would have been detected in the analysis. Without leaving their homeland, this means males could not have forced these females to move to a new location unless they were either sexually celibate or eunuchs. In either case, a eunuch or voluntarily celibate would be disinterested in the whereabouts or movements of females. For the sake of being transparent, I should point out some inconsistencies with what I just described about Neanderthal dispersal and migration. The migration from Western Eurasia to Eastern Eurasia is a major event that likely occurred less than a handful of times, or possibly only once about 100,000 years ago. Even the natal dispersals of Neanderthals was much less of an occurrence when compared to modern humans. There's a mystery shrouding Neanderthals and Denisovans for that matter. They are much more inbred than modern humans and lived in much smaller groups, sometimes as low as 30 members, which saw very little new arrivals. It's not really known why these groups were so isolated from each other. Was it cultural? Or was it geographic isolation? Or did climate limit their ability to reach each other? The Neanderthal migration and dispersal patterns I described are major pulses of activity surrounded by tens, hundreds, or even thousands of years of silence. 
And yet the available data hints that when Neanderthals were able to disperse and reach a new group, it was often freely moving females that were responsible for the gene flow, not a male raiding party dragging female captives away to a distant village. Even when males did migrate, evidence indicates that females originating from the same population were just as likely to land in a different location than their male counterparts. Female hominins are likely as equally autonomous as our grade 8 cousins. The dispersal patterns of males and females are dictated by social organization, resource availability, and other environmental, demographical, and ecological factors. I find it highly unlikely that Pleistocene hominins such as Homo erectus, Neanderthals, Denisovans, and hunter-gatherers were any less bound to these elements than the rest of the primate order. The purpose of this episode was to explore the question of Neanderthal female autonomy through the lens of biology and ecology rather than human narrative. I wanted to see if Neanderthals fell in line with natal dispersal patterns of mammals, primates, great apes, and modern humans. Was female autonomy even a possibility among the great apes? If Neanderthal females were autonomous, would that go against the pattern of great apes and modern humans? To me, it became obvious that Neanderthal female autonomy is not only plausible, but in agreement with the rest of our great ape cousins. I don't see how kidnap or rape can fit into the history of Neanderthals, at least for the purpose of explaining natal dispersal patterns. We don't doubt that female chimpanzees freely disperse, so why should we assume Neanderthals or even Pleistocene hunter-gatherers should be any different? When so much of the evidence supports female autonomy and natal dispersal of Neanderthals, I can only conclude that the narrative of kidnap and rape as an explanation of female movement is a projection of Holocene and civilizational modern humans, pop science, and those with an agenda.